welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on June 5th, Lord's Day Service. This month is we've got four classes planned. So today it's about marriage and companionship. Next week it's uh, going to be Matt teaching on um, uh, husbands and headship. Uh, then the next week after that, Matt's going to be teaching on uh, submission. It's called the weapon of submission. And then the fourth week, David is going to be teaching on conflict resolution within marriage. So that's what we're doing this month in the marriage. Class. So let me start us in prayer and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for your goodness and your provisions for us. Uh, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we think about marriage. Give us clarity of thought and insight. Pray that your spirit would work in us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're talking about marriage and companionship. That's the title of this talk. And Let's think a little bit about companionship. A companion is someone that you are frequently with. It's someone you're frequently in the company of. And so marriage provides a lot of things, and one of the things marriage provides is companionship. But it's not just any companionship, because as we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, this is a one-flesh companionship. So as you think about companionship, let's think about the word first. The Latin word for companion comes from two words. Com means together with, and then pan means bread. And the Latin word for companionship basically meant the ones you share bread with. In other words, the original meaning of companionship was those you eat with, those you break bread with. So think about that. In the context of ordinary life, who are those you break bread with most frequently? Your, your family, your husband or your wife, your children, those you are closest to. Those are the ones you break bread with the most. So your bread fellows are those people you are closest to, the people you are most frequently with. So that's the first essence of the meaning of companion. It's those you are with most frequently. But it's more to it than that, because when you dig into the word companion, the Latin words for companionship are a translation for a Germanic word that replaced an Old English word, gefera. And that, so that's like the original word for companion. And that word meant traveling companion. And so that original Old English word was basically those people you travel with. And it kind of morphed over time to be then those people you most frequently eat with. Well, think about that. Who are the people you travel with on a personal level? Again, it's usually those people you're closest with. It's your family. It's your kids. It's your spouse. It's those people you are close with. So a companion, in general, is someone you spend a lot of time with. It's the sort of person you eat with. It's the sort of person you travel with. So in that sense, then, your spouse 
is your chief companion. Your spouse is your chief companion. And your spouse, of course, though, is, is a different companion than your friends. Like, of course, the companionship happens on a spectrum. We could say our friends are our companions. You could say those people you work with 40 hours a week are your companions. But your spouse is a different companion than your friends. And the difference is that you are a companion with your spouse on more than just one level. You are a one flesh companion with your spouse, but not with your friends or your co-workers. And so, what have we said? A companion is someone you are most frequently with. Your spouse is your chief companion. She is the one or he is the one that you eat with most frequently, spend a lot of time with, the sort of person you would travel with, and you're doing all of this in the context of a one flesh union. And of course, for Christians, it's not just that your spouse is your chief companion doing all those things. It's that your spouse is someone you are growing in godliness with. Your spouse is someone you're growing in like-mindedness with. So your spouse is your chief companion, eating most frequently with, traveling most frequently with, together with most often, for the purpose of growing in godliness and like-mindedness. So... With that introduction of companionship, you can make your way to Genesis chapter 2. And really our purpose this morning is to reflect on Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. And you'll see as you get there, there's really two parts to Genesis 2 18. And there's a lot to teach us here in Genesis 2 18 about marriage and companionship. And the first thing we learn from Genesis 2.18 is that it is not good that man should be alone. So look at it with me, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So let's think about that for a moment. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, of course, we're here in the Garden of Eden. Marriage begins in the Garden of Eden, which means the foundations of our understanding of marriage are found in the Garden of Eden. And so consider that God made Adam, but then consider that Adam was alone in the garden. That's what it's telling us here in chapter 2, verse 18. It says, it is not good that man should be alone. In other words, man is alone in the garden. That's how it starts out. And so, there was no Eve for a period of time. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, God puts Adam to work in the garden. And this is before Eve was made as a helper for Adam. So Adam is alone in the garden. Now someone probably will protest and say, no, no, he's not alone. He has the animals. And of course that's true. He's surrounded by the animals. He's surrounded by the various living creatures. The plants in the air replenished life. And Adam could command the animals to come and play before him to be in his presence. And so someone might say, see, he's not really alone. The animals are there in his presence. But what you have to realize is that Adam is alone 
first know he's alone because that's what we're told in chapter 2, verse 18, but also understand that he's alone because he lacked fellowship. He's alone, even though he's surrounded by the animals, he's alone because he lacked companionship. Adam, there, with the animals, had a desire for harmony and true delight that can only come from that which is mutual, from that which is reciprocal, from that which is in proportion due, given, and received. And none of that can happen with the animals. The animals are not fit to participate in companionship or fellowship with Adam. They can share no rational correspondence with Adam. They can share no human delights with Adam and certainly no physical pleasure with Adam. And when you think about the animals, you know that animals uh, have companionship with their own kind. Animals rejoice with their own kind. The lion with the lioness. Not a fish with the fowl or a bird with the beast. Not an ox with an ape. And so a lion requires a lioness to have companionship. An ox cannot have companionship with an ape. A fish cannot have companionship with a fowl. So then why would we think that man could have companionship with a lion, a fish, a fowl, or an ape? And so Adam, yes, he's surrounded by animals, but Adam is alone. We're told in Genesis 2, 18. And so when you look at this, you have to think, Well, why did God do it this way? Why did God make Adam solitude for a period of time? Why was Adam in solitude at first? And that's a really interesting question because you have to think about, okay, God made Adam in his image. And God made Adam to be alone, at least for a period of time. And could it be that Adam is in solitude at first because that same sort of solitude is possessed and enjoyed by God himself. God is in solitude. The Godhead is in solitude. Now when I say God, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, often referred to with the language of the Godhead. So God, or the Godhead, has no equal in heaven. God is in solitude. God is alone. Yeah, there's angels that surround him, just like there were animals that surround Adam. But God is alone, just like Adam was alone. There is no equal for the Godhead to converse with on a reciprocal level in heaven just as there was no equal for Adam to fellowship with in the garden. So God is in heaven. He's surrounded by the angels, which means he's surrounded by inferior creatures that are far beneath him. And Adam in the garden is also surrounded by inferior creatures that are far beneath him. And so there is no companionship for God And there is no companionship for Adam for a while. So could it be that God made Adam alone for a while because he's making Adam in his image to reflect him? And maybe being alone is not such a bad thing. And of course, Adam is the vice regent of creation. He's the representative of the rule of God on earth. And so just as God had no equal in heaven, Adam was made initially with no equal on earth. 
So you're thinking about the solitude of man, solitude of Adam, the aloneness of man. There are differences, though, between the solitude of man and the solitude of God. There's a difference between God and sinless Adam, who is alone in the garden. And I think there's two main differences between God in his solitude and sinless Adam in his solitude. The first difference is that God in himself is perfect. God in himself is perfect. Adam was sinless, but he's not perfect. Adam was innocent, but he's not perfect. In other words, God is eternal. Adam is not. Adam has deficiencies. Adam has weaknesses. He's not perfect, even though he's sinless. But God is perfect. He has no deficiency. He has no weakness. And since God has no deficiency, since God has no weakness, since God is the supreme of all things, that then means that he has no need to propagate. He has no need to multiply. In fact, I would argue it's definitionally impossible for God to multiply. God can't be made more. If he could be made more, then he's not absolute. He can't be made better. God has no need for more love to compensate something that's lacking. And so God has no need to propagate. He's perfect. That's what it means to be perfect. He can't be added to. He is the supreme of all things. He's infinite. How do you propagate that? How do you add to that? How do you make more of that which is infinite? Well, you can't. And so, what's the difference between God, who's alone, and sinless Adam, who's alone? Well, this first difference is that God is perfect. Adam is not. And since there's no defect... That means God requires no additional love. God requires no collateral love. But man, even sinless man, is imperfect. He is deficient. He is, you could argue in that sense then, defective. Meaning he's not absolute. He's not perfect. And so man is told to multiply. Like of his like. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is because man requires collateral love and man requires collateral companionship in a way that the God who is perfect and can't be added to doesn't require. And so the first difference between God who is alone and sinless Adam who is alone is that God in himself is perfect. The second difference is that God in himself is is Trinity. God in himself is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit eternally exist in perfect harmony, fellowship, and joy. What is God? God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Greek word perichoresis is helpful here. Perichoresis refers to the mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit mutually indwell each other, they are not separate from each other. This is the the, the doctrine, the lost doctrine of divine simplicity. So they're not separate from each other. Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate from each other, not in their divinity. And in this way, the Godhead is different from, say, triplets, 
who separate from each other even though it's possible for them to have identical DNA. That's not what the Trinity is. God is not Father, Son, and Spirit who have identical DNA but are separate. You know, when you've got those triplets who are separate like that but have the same DNA, they're still separate in their essence. God, while having distinct persons, is not separate in his essence, in his divine essence. The divine definition of God remains the same, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the three persons of the Trinity reciprocally contain one another so that the one should permanently, permanently envelop the other, which is then enveloped by the other, whom yet he envelops in this unique relationship, a relationship that satisfies any love need that might exist for God. And so we've got God who's alone, and then we've got man made in his image, sinless man who is alone. But there are differences between the two. First, God in himself is perfect. And second, God in himself is trinity. And so that means man, Adam, at this point in the story, Genesis 2.18, he may be sinless, but he is not God. And God knew it was not good for him to be alone like God is alone. And that takes us to the second part of verse 18. So look at it again. Genesis 2.18, there's two things it has to teach us about companionship. The first is that it's not good that man should be alone. And then second thing is, I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is the second thing we learn about companionship, that God will make him a helper fit for him. And let's read a little bit here going through verse 25. Okay, So I'm going to start in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right. So we see now the second part of verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so we're at this part of the story in the creation where God's image is put on man, but not on the beast. Therefore... While Adam can interact with the animals, he cannot have fellowship with them. He cannot have companionship with them, so he's alone. And so verse 18 affirms this. He's alone, just like we were saying. And so just like we would say that a, a woman in her apartment with her three cats is alone, so too we would say that Adam in the garden, surrounded by the animals, is alone. And so then... The second part of verse 18, God created a companion in man's likeness. And it says in verse 18, God made for him a fit helper. 
And then we also see in verse 23 that this is man's other self. When you look at the language of verse 23, man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So that means she's man's other self. God put Adam to sleep and opened his side and took one of his ribs. The wound on Adam's side is a reminder that Eve was meant to be beside him, which is part of what the fit helper language in verse 18 means. Eve is meant to be beside him, which is nothing more than to say Eve is meant to be his companion. Adam and Eve are to be each other's companion. So God took the rib, formed and fashioned a creature. And this new creature is manlike, but a different sex. And so Adam sees her, and Adam thought her lovely in a way he didn't think the lion was lovely. Before, Adam had no companionship with the animals. But when Adam looked at Eve, the spirit of love and amorous delight was all summed up and contained in her in such a way that sang the song of companionship. And so God made Eve from man. So man is made in the image of God, but then Eve is made from man, which then means that she contains the same dignity that man has. And she has the love that can match the love of Adam. The good puppy dog cannot match the love of a human being. But Eve could match the love of Adam. She is bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh. And so she has the wisdom of Adam. She has the dominion calling of Adam. She has the virtue of Adam, the authority of Adam. She has the reason of Adam and the nobility and the higher knowledge of Adam. And so in that sense, she can have companionship with Adam in a way that the animals could not have companionship with Adam. And so Eve is worthy of his soul and he is worthy of her soul in a way that the cattle aren't. And so she is a fit helper for him. That is, she is his companion. In her company, Adam finds attraction and connection. And that's a two-pronged thing. The attraction is physical. The connection is spiritual. And so reproduction belongs to the animals and to the humans. But mutual help and companionship in a marriage is distinctively human because it's physical and spiritual. The attraction is physical. The connection is spiritual. And that's a big part of what verse 24 means with the one flesh union. When we read that one flesh union, we immediately think it's physical. And of course it is, but it's more than that. The idea of the one flesh union is physical and spiritual. And so, yes, it's a physical one flesh union in all that that implies, but it's also a spiritual one flesh union, meaning they are becoming like one soul. They're becoming like one person. Notice I said the word like. They're still two distinct persons. They're becoming like one. They're one flesh. And that is a physical and spiritual thing. And that is very different from the sort of companionship that happens in the animal world. 
So then you have to think, well, why is that the case? Why is it that the companionship of marriage is physical and spiritual? And and the answer to that is nothing more than the fact that what is man? What is a a human being? Well, it's body and soul. A human being is a physical and spiritual creatures. And so persons are not spirits and minds just inhabiting a body. The body is part of the reality of life on God's earth. The body is not just an instrument for the soul. And the soul's what matters and the, and the body doesn't. That's not the point of the body. It's not just housing the soul. No, it matters. The body is part of the definition of a human being. The body is not a container for the soul that can be dispensed with. No, it's an essential part of personal reality for those who bear the image of God. And so that means then that a husband and wife's relationship is comprehensive. It's comprehensive in the sense that it's physical and spiritual. It involves body and soul. And of course, we probably know that men are more drawn to the physical side of that relationship, and women are more drawn to the spiritual side of that relationship. And in order to create a comprehensive companionship of one flesh union, the man needs to remember that this is also a spiritual one flesh union. And the woman also needs to remember this is a physical one flesh union. That's how you get a comprehensive companionship. And so there's more than a physical level, men. And there's more than an emotional or spiritual level, women. It's both. That's the definition of this one flesh companionship. It's physical and spiritual. It's body and soul. And if it's only one of the two, it is an incomplete companionship. And so the relationship is consummated physically, which completes and seals it, which actualizes and embodies that one flesh companionship. But then also, if the Song of Solomon is to be believed, the companionship between the two enlarges the soul. It enlarges the heart in such a way so as to ascend to at least the foretaste of heavenly love. Again, in that sense then, it becomes impossible to separate the physical and the spiritual. Your body and soul, as a human being, that's your definition. To define a human being, you can't separate that. Likewise, then, when that's worked out in the one flesh companionship of marriage, in the most healthy sense, in the most healthy marriage, you cannot separate that. And that's why within a marriage, genuine marital communion, genuine marital companionship must be both physical and spiritual. It's, and it's really not optional. If, if the marriage doesn't have both, the marriage is a lie. If the marriage lacks the physical companionship, it's a lie. And if the marriage lacks the spiritual companionship, it is also a lie. And so the point of the relationship, remember, and we don't have time to to feature this, the point of the relationship is to lead us to God. It's to lead us to heaven and to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. It's It's to lead man and wife to heaven, to lead them to the sort of physical and spiritual faithfulness in this life that ends up in heaven. And so that's a sanctifying companionship there. The physical and, and, and uh, spiritual, it's a sanctifying companionship. It's the comprehensive sharing of life, a sharing at every level of being. It's the one flesh 
union. And so we see in Genesis 2.18 these two things that we learn about companionship. First, it's not good that the man should be alone. And second, I will make him a helper fit for him. And when you look at all of that, that leads to what should be a comprehensive companionship. So once you see that in Genesis 2.18, the question then becomes, how do you get that? Like, how do you get a marriage of comprehensive sharing of life, physically and spiritually? How do you achieve this? And so let's consider two or three things here on how to get a marriage of comprehension, a comprehensive sharing of life. So let's consider three things. First, realize that you cannot have a comprehensive sharing of life when there's a lot of quarrelsomeness. Companionship, in the way that we're seeing described in Genesis 2, companionship is very difficult with a quarrelsome spouse. And so the opposite of being quarrelsome is being pleasant. And so men and women, husbands and wives, should seek, should work hard to be pleasant. You say... I'm not naturally pleasant. My parents weren't pleasant. Their parents weren't pleasant. My DNA, my gene, I have the unpleasant gene. That's really hard. And so to you, I say, that just means you have to work harder at being pleasant. So men and women should seek to be pleasant. And the Bible has a great deal to say about quarreling and the constant nuisance associated with living with someone who's quarrelsome. For example, Proverbs 19.13. The contentions of a shrewish woman are like a continuing dripping. Quite an image there. Some of the translations translate shrewish as quarrelsome. Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 17.14 The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. In other words... When you see the quarrel coming, you all know what I'm talking about. It's 2 o'clock and you know by 4 you're going to be quarreling. When you see it coming, stop it at 2 o'clock. Stop whatever it is that's leading to the 4 o'clock quarrel. That's what Proverbs 17, 14 is saying. Now, for the people who are quarrelsome, they justify their quarrelsomeness basically by saying, well, um, I just like to provide direction to the family. And so there's a certain way it needs to be done. I happen to be the one in the relationship who knows the certain way it needs to be done. That's what I'm doing. I'm not being quarrelsome. That's an ugly word. I'm merely providing direction to the family. Another way quarrelsomeness is justified is with the whole, I'm just one of those people with strong opinions, which I always kind of giggle at, as if every human being doesn't have strong opinions. Everyone has opinions. Everyone has strong opinions. The person who just says, well, I'm just, I just have strong opinions, all that means is you have no self-control. The people who you say don't have strong opinions have self-control over when and when not to share those opinions. Okay? Everyone's got opinions, if you haven't figured that out yet. Everyone's got opinions. The ones you have are strong. Okay? So, again, you can't just say, yeah, maybe, maybe you could describe me as quarrelsome, but no, I just have strong opinions. Because I have conviction. No, no, no. You can't justify your sin in that way. So there's all sorts of ways to justify being quarrelsome. 
to, to being the one who brings strife. I provide direction. I just have strong opinions and convictions. But you have to realize that quarrelsomeness is a sin, no matter what you call it. And when there's quarrelsomeness as a steady diet in a marriage, companionship of, this, of the sort we're seeing described in Genesis 2 becomes very difficult. The word quarrelsome means nothing other than fit to quarrel. It means a person's default disposition is to quarrel, to, uh, to, to be in frequent disputes. That's their basic default disposition. So it leads to frequent arguing, frequent tension. And basically the result of frequent quarreling is it substitutes, uh, it substitutes hostile relations for friendly ones. It takes what should be friendly or pleasant relations and makes them hostile. And that's where Proverbs 18:19 says quarreling is like the bars of a castle. And so then if we want this comprehensive sharing, this comprehensive companionship, we need to be on guard against quarreling. And the first sentence of Leo Tolstoy's book Anna Karina is this. Maybe you've heard it. I'll read it twice. All happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Once more. All happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in this statement from Tolstoy. And he's getting this from this French proverb. And the French proverb that he's basically stealing this from and reworking it for his novel, the French proverb is, happy people have no history. Happy people have no history. And the word history there doesn't mean what you think. It's not like the study of the past. The word history there means basically drama. The idea is that the more drama in your life. Think reality TV. That kind of drama. The more hostile intensity in your marriage. The more high drama. The more manufactured drama. The more catastrophes. The worse life is going to be. So happy people have no history. And so going back to the Tolstoy quote, all happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. The reason all happy families resemble each other is that they don't have a story. They don't have a history. They don't have the constant catastrophe, the constant blow-up, the constant quarreling. A story, in the sense it's being used in these quotes, or a history, is basically the result of unchecked sinful emotion. And so, when you have unchecked sinful emotion, you create a story or a history that becomes part of your family or your marriage. And so, drama and quarreling usually cause families to miss what is really important. Think about it. When you think back to your childhood, you don't remember that calm Tuesday when you were 11 years old. What do you remember? You remember that day when your mom and dad had that huge fight. Right? You might have had 600 days of calmness. You don't remember any of them. 
what do you remember? You remember the one day that your parents had the big fight. And so what that teaches us is that we don't remember the ordinary things of life. We tend to overlook things that are not dramatic. But that which is dramatic, that which has the story, that which has the history, that's what makes the mark. That's what we remember. And that's why all happy families, as Tolstoy says, resemble one another in that they don't have a story. They don't have a history. They don't have a prolonged and constant quarrel that's there defining the family. So, the first way to get a marriage of comprehension, a comprehensive sharing of life, is remember that companionship is difficult with a quarrelsome spouse. And if you're thinking about your spouse right now, you've missed the entire point. You should be thinking about yourself. The second thing to consider about how do we get a marriage of comprehension sharing of life is to think and remember that companionship is not mindless agreement. Companionship is not mindless agreement. Because you might hear the wisdom that the scriptures give us about avoiding quarreling and think, okay, I just need to never say anything. That's not the point either. Companionship is not mindless agreement. And so listen, for example, to Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. In other words, faithful are the wounds of your companion. Faithful are the wounds of your chief companion. And so that means a good, faithful spouse will learn how to challenge their husband or wife with hard words, with direct words, with the hard things, often with the things that no one else will tell them because no one else sees what goes on in your house. The only person that can really sanctify that part of your life is your spouse. Your closest friends do not know what goes on in your house. They only know what you've led them to believe, and we all know that that's not the full story, and I'm not saying it should be. There's a time and place to reveal personal details. But your spouse knows you, is your chief companion. They know you in a way that other people don't. And so they are uniquely positioned to help you grow in the Lord. And the reason that's in particularly important is because not only are we you know, trying to guard against quarrelsomeness, and so you know, we, we could swing to the opposite extreme and, and fail to be that graceful but sanctifying influence in our spouse's life, but also because in modern society, marriage is basically an echo chamber of affirmation. That's basically the definition of marriage in modern society. The point of marriage is to give you constant affirmation. It's an echo chamber of affirmation. But in reality, yes, affirmation is great and important. You should be affirmed, especially when you're righteous. But you should not be affirmed when you're unrighteous. And so a spouse who tells you the truth in love is a loving spouse. And that should be part of, in particular, the spiritual companionship that we talked about earlier. And what that means is, is you and your spouse should cultivate the sort of marriage where you can faithfully wound each other. And this is the sort of thing that's probably uh, going to have some trial and error in the early stages of a marriage. Because there's probably a certain way that you can talk to your spouse that doesn't edify them. And there is a certain way that you can talk to them that will. You're going to have to figure that out. 
And that's okay. You've got to give each other room to figure that out. There's a trust there in the marriage relationship. But you should seek to cultivate the sort of marriage where you can, in the words of Proverbs 27, faithfully wound each other. And maybe that means not just you figuring out how to speak to your spouse, but you figuring out how to receive the words of your spouse, primarily without immediate defensive action. And so we should set this pattern of love and loyalty, of trust and credibility, such that when it comes time to faithfully wound, which, by the way, shouldn't be every day, but when it comes time to faithfully wound, there's a trust there and a companionship there where your spouse will listen to you and you will listen to your spouse. But if your marriage just has mindless agreement, mindless affirmation of everything, you need to ask yourself, well, why is this the case? Because it could be the case that you're not receiving the wounds from your chief companion because of how you reacted in the past when they tried to raise things to you. Maybe you reacted in such a way that you bit their head off or you were so defensive that now they're gun shy because they know it's not going to go well. So if you're in a marriage where it's just mindless agreement, there's no faithful wounding happening, you need to ask, why is this the case? Is it because I act childish anytime anything's mentioned against me? All right, lastly, as we wrap up for today, how do we cultivate this uh, comprehensive companionship. The third thing to keep in mind is to remember that companionship is not about self-satisfaction. And marriage is not about self-satisfaction. And the reason this is particularly important is because in our post-industrial 21st century technocratic world, the default idea of marriage is a, is a, is a far departure from the biblical picture. And to sum it up, in modern times, marriage is about each person finding their own potential. And so the reason, if you're even going to get married at all anymore, the reason you should get married is because because that will help you find your potential. And in the modern schema of marriage, how is potential found? Well, potential is found through a voyage. It's through a journey, and marriage can become part of your journey. And so finding your own potential is about self-discovery. And so long as the marriage helps you find your potential and helps you with self-discovery, you should stay married. But if in the context of that marriage, over time, you find that you're no longer being pushed towards your potential or self-discovery, then maybe you should consider divorce. In the modern schema... Finding your own potential is about finding your inner core. Finding your core essence. Who's the real you? Do you even know yet who the real you is? Maybe, maybe in the context of your marriage, your spouse can help you learn who the real you is. And you can find your potential. And then, so long as in that marriage you're finding the real you, you're finding the inner core, you should probably stay married. But if in the context of that marriage, over time... If you're no longer able to discover the real you, the core essence of you, maybe you should consider divorce. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that that's how our secular age views marriage. The wider attitude of the present age, it's all about me, it's all about my fulfillment, it's about my self-esteem, it's about my standpoint, and it's about my pleasure. 
And so when Christians start speaking about a biblical definition of marriage, it's, it's a dead language to most people. Because it's not about finding your inner you. And it's not about finding your potential. Christians know that virtue in life is self-sacrifice and self-denial that's patterned by Jesus Christ. That's virtue. But in the cultural consensus, what is virtue? Virtue is you being you. And everyone else can respond accordingly. So we have competing notions of virtue. The Christian notion of self-denial and self-sacrifice. The cultural consensus, though, is about you being you. But part of the reason God ordained the household to be the basic unit of society is because marriage and family are sanctified. Marriage and family, marriage and children weans people, especially the husband and wife. It weans people of the very sort of selfishness that is prized by modern people. When you vow to love your spouse in sickness and in health till death do us part, that is not referring to your duty to serve your own voyage of self-discovery. It's much the opposite. And so today, people love their spouses as long as they help me find my potential and connect with my inner person. But in contrast to the modern psychobabble, Christians know that the idea that life is all about me is really something that ought to be lost by the time you're 12 years old. And by the way, as a side point for parenting, that should be one of the primary goals of parenting. By the time your kid's 12, they should have figured out that life is not all about me. That's one of the things we have to be driving for. A three-year-old thinks life is all about them. By the time they're 12, that should not be part of their world. They should understand that they have an outward-looking life, not an inward-looking life. But the modern world hasn't learned that lesson. We're all three-year-olds just in adult form. And so the notion that marriage is all about me and my potential and my fulfillment, not only is it selfish, but it's childish. That's how a three-year-old acts. And yet what modern culture has done is we've wrapped that up in marriage and said this is a good marriage when both people are acting to find their own potential. And so when people say I do today, they think potential, finding my own potential, self-discovery, they think that's the secret to a happy marriage. But in contrast to the ill-fated gibberish of the modern world, the Bible describes marriage as a covenant. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.